Um, he spoke once before, but if you missed him, uh, you get another treat this morning. We're glad to have him. So help me welcome Chris Cox. Thank you. Um, to, to partner with what John just shared, as uh, being uh, able to see into the staff that, that's here at Grace Chapel and to, to partner with them on a regular basis, I can tell you that 40 Days of Love is not a program that you're being asked to participate in. It's a lifestyle that you're being asked to adopt that will be in your best interest. It's not something to say, well, we're a church and churches do programs and so here's our program for the next 40 days. Go to a small group, come to church and do a personal study. It's not to check things off of a list. It's because the team that's leading you here so desperately wants you to come face-to-face with the creator of the universe to be in an intimate relationship with him so that when you're in those darkest moments alone, you're really standing next to him. The places that you can't take your husbands and wives and, and your friends and even your community groups that if you're poured into through these ways, then God can pour into you when you're away from those platforms as well. And so it's not, again, it's not a program. So don't look at it, wow, this is one of those churches that just wants you to do programs. It's not one of those churches. This is one of those churches that believes that the church is the hope of the world and that by empowering the church to be the hope of the world, things will change and the world will become the bride of Christ, that we will be able to sit next to Jesus and receiving our inheritance in heaven. That's why 40 Days of Love is part of this series. And I throw that out to you because 40 Days of Love is not an attractive thing to me. Um, I am not a kind of like emotional lovey kind of guy. Um, It was one of those questions that Jeff and John forgot to ask when I was being interviewed of, do you like to have, you know, hugs? Um, Because I don't. Um, I don't like people touching me. I, I... I have issues, real, real bad issues with that. When people hug me, it just causes all kinds of things to happen inside my mind. And, and this is the most huggable staff I've ever seen in my life. And so when they're, you know, first, Jeff, Jeff lures me too. He, he knows, he knows I don't like hugs. So he reaches his hand out and pulls me in to the embrace. And he does it on purpose. And so I'm getting pulled into the, and then they're releasing, we're going to do 40 days of love. And I'm like, oh my goodness, this is going to kill me. Because you're just going to want us all to hug each other every week and to cry together and to just be all tough. And I don't want to do that because I just, for some reason, physical touch is not, you know, my love language at all. Um, There are other things that I like to share with people that I love. But it's not necessarily to just walk into a room and hug people. And if, and if you're a, a, kiss, a, a cheek kisser, oh, you will make me so uncomfortable. Um, because when somebody, when so, I grew up in a, in a small country church in Kentucky. And when I would be allowed to speak there and get off the stage, and, and I, I just had some cheek kissers that just would come right up and just plant. I mean, and they had just put on lipstick too. And it was just one of those moments where they're just going to plant. And I'm just like... Okay, Jesus, I love you, and you're stretching me right now. Okay, I can get through this. I can't get through this. Um, because I'm not, I'm not a physical contact person. But that's not necessarily the definition of love. And it's good. I'm not saying that hugs are bad, because hugs are very, very good. It's me that has the issues. Um, but that's not necessarily the love we're talking about. There is a love that sometimes you need an embrace 
And you need to be hugged and you need to be encouraged and you need your, your kids to run up to you and just sit in your lap or you need an embrace from your husband or wife. Um, but there is a love that we're talking about now that is much more than just a word or a physical affection. It's a lifestyle of self-sacrifice that says, I put you before me so that you can become all that God created you to be, and I will find my complete purpose by helping you be at the center of God's will. And that when we choose to figure out how that puzzle fits together, where the things that we need in our life in order to find our purpose partner with us embracing and enhancing the lives of people around us, then the church will truly be the bride of Christ and we will look different than the other things that are offered in the world. That our key is actually being a loving community of people. And this morning what we're going to talk about is loving people the way Jesus loved people. He didn't say, I love you too much. He didn't spend his entire ministry just walking around saying, you know, I love you. He spoke it through his actions. And this morning, we want to dive into that. We want to dive into the relationship that Jesus has with his disciples physically on earth, and that then he promises that he will have with us for all of eternity. And how do we practically apply that in a world that is built on so much self-love? How do we get there to a place where self-sacrifice and an outpouring of our love can actually be tangible and real and we don't simply step back and make it the last thing that we say before we hang up the phone with someone? I can remember the first time that I really fell in love and it was with my wife. I, I had dated in high school and junior high and elementary school and made many, many mistakes there. Um, not an example I want you to follow. But... I'd never been in love. I had never wanted to change for someone. I had always kind of looked at the, the dating scene of just going, well, if, you know, if she's willing to accept me for who I am and the way I'm wired and not touch me, um, <laughs> then, <laughs> then we're good. But then I met Sarah. And when I met her, um, at a, it was very weird. I'm a Kentucky boy, was going to Cincinnati Christian University, but I was at a Cincinnati Hills Christian Academy football game, which is very, very interesting that now I'm in Mason, right around the corner from CHCA. Um, and I'm at this football game. I see her walking down a set of bleachers. I look at her and go, that will be my wife. Um, then she talks, and I'm like, confirmation from God, that will be my wife. She's not only beautiful, but she's intelligent. That's awesome. And so I look at my friend who actually had come to ask her out, and I'm like, looking at him going, you're not going to get her. Um, and... <laughs> Because I couldn't help it. I was like, I mean, she was just blew my mind. I'm like, that's, that's the one. And so in that, it's that first weekend, I became a fool. Um, I took 100 little peppermint candies and stuffed them in her car um, all over the place because we went to TGI Fridays to eat. And they gave those for free. And I was a poor college kid. And I was like, I don't want to call her because I don't want to look like that stalker guy. Um, I want her to call me. And so I stick all these peppermint candies in her car, in the dashboard, in the doors, all over the place. So she gets up the next morning and goes into her car. And it's just a peppermint factory. And she calls me. And she's like, did you put all these peppermints in my car? I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about, but I'm so glad you called. I, I couldn't, couldn't wait to hear from you. I figured you were going to call and ask me out. So yeah, like, we can go out. And, uh, <laughs> and, and it worked because she married me. Um, and, 
And so, in that, and, and I'm looking at even that weekend going, that is not you. What are you doing? And, I'm, and then I'm talking to myself, which happens occasionally for me. And I'm, I'm talking to myself, and I'm like, but if she's worth it. And we're like two months into the relationship, and I've never really told a, a girl that I loved her. And if I did, it was because she was annoying me, and I wanted her to stop asking me that question in high school. And, and I never meant it. Um, if you're a high schooler, there are guys like me out there, so stop dating them. Um, and... I, and, but two months in, it's my birthday, and it's 1998, so this, I need to clarify that because this, he was a good baseball player then. Sarah got me a King Griffey Jr. baseball jersey. It was 1998. Okay, he was good. Um, and I opened this thing, and I look at it, and she knew, like, already she knew, like, the things that I liked, stuff that I was into, a, a present that I would actually value, and I looked at it, and I'm like, I've never had a jersey before. I was wondering one, and I'm looking at it going, wow, oh, this is awesome. And I turn to her, and I look at her, and I'm like, I love you. And, like, train wreck was happening in my mind. Because we were nowhere near there in the relationship yet. We had just been dating two months, very casual, courting. And I'm, like, watching. I hear myself say it, and in my mind, I'm like, boom, there goes the best thing that ever happened to you, buddy, because now you're a stalker guy. And I'm like, did that take the, come back into my mouth, please? And she's sitting there because she knew we weren't ready for that level of relationship either. And she just is like, she heard it. I know she heard it. And she's like, what'd you just say? And I'm like, I love this jersey. <laughs> and she's like, is that really what you said? And I'm like, um, no. And she's like, what'd you say? And I'm like, um, you're not running. You haven't left. You're not. Okay. Should I say it again? And I'm like, I said, I love you. And I know it's way too early in the relationship to say that, but I do. And I mean it. And she looked at me and she was like, tell me again. And I'm like, yeah, I got the girl. (laughs) And it worked. She married me. Um, But in that moment, like all of the emotions and the newness of the relationship and the concept that here is someone that I am so intrigued by that I am willing to step out of my own comfort zone in the normal paths of my mouth um, on a daily basis and just be whoever I need to be in that moment in order to become who she needs me to be. That moment has defined not only my relationship with her, But my relationship with God, because as a believer in Christ, having that moment with my now wife and still loving her as madly as I did the first time that I blurted out those words, I'm reminded that Jesus whispers, do you love me more than her? Is your relationship with me even greater than that? Or is she your fulfillment? Because if she's your fulfillment, I want to whisper to you today, Chris. I'm even better. And that's what excites me about pursuing a journey of love with God. Is to know how deeply my love with my wife is. How deeply my love with my little girl is. And know that he's standing in the back going, still not me. Still not a relationship with me. All of that, I don't want to take away from you. I want you to have that. It's not that I want you to steal that away so that you can only obsess about me. I want you to know that if you are in a complete desire for me, it's even better 
than the love relationships that you can't help but just blurt out and that you leave peppermint candies in car doors for and you save every penny that you can to put a ring on her finger because if you don't, you're afraid some other guy will. It's better than that. And this morning I want to share with you that it's better than that. We're going to talk about four ways that Jesus loves us that in turn we need to flip and share with someone else. Because if we are accepted, valued, forgiven, and believed in, we will fall in love with God. If you have a Bible with you, uh, I'll be in John chapter 13 this morning. A lot of times when I read the Word of God, uh, I get caught reading maybe a little segment or a verse. And sometimes that's very good for us. Sometimes maybe that's all the meat we can handle in a day is one verse. And we're like, whoa, that spoke directly to me and we need to move on. But there are other times where we need to set up the context for a story or for a moment because this is his story. This is a story about God and his beloved children, us, his creation that he made in his image and how he is redeeming us back to him and how he is the central character and how we are the object of his affection that this central character is wanting to show his character, um, his wants, his purpose, his plans around us. And in John chapter 13... There is a lot going on, but it's all centrally around one verse. And I want you to read that verse with me. It's verse 34 in John chapter 13. And Jesus says this, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. I am so glad that in this verse, Jesus did not say, and this is how you will, they will know you are my disciples. If you have a fish on the back of your car, they will know you are my disciples. If you have a Christian t-shirt that you wear under your suit every day that you go to work, if you wear a bracelet that says my name, if you wear a cross around your neck, those things aren't bad. But I'm just so glad that that's not the answer that he came up with for us but that he said, this is how they'll know, the world will know you're with me, is if you love one another. That will set you apart. And the reason I'm so thankful for that is that love is such an amazing, beautiful aspect of our life that allows us to become who we really are, that God is giving us the gift of saying, here's how you can follow me. Love each other. I'll give you a joyful journey in your pursuit of me. Even in the difficult times, If it's through the lens of love, it will be an amazing journey. And Jesus paints this picture all around this verse in John chapter 13 and 14 of how this love is actually going to look. He begins in chapter 13, verse 1, it says, It was just before the Passover feast, Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. So here's Jesus' purpose statement right here of saying, what I'm about to do and say is me showing you the full extent of my love. And as they were sitting down to a meal, which I couldn't imagine what that would be like, sitting down at a meal with the physical Jesus walking in off the street and his disciples. We know in this atmosphere, more than likely, several of them are sitting around going, did you see, did you? I knew he could do some really cool stuff, but... That's amazing. He continues to blow our mind. 
some of his disciples are going, I call right side. I call left side. Judas, sit down there. They're calling spots around the table as who's going to sit next to Jesus, who's going to be at his right hand, who's going to be at his left hand, who's going to be at the end of the table. Everybody's bursting in the room, the chatter, the laughter, the enjoyment, the confusion of some of them going, did he, did he say we have to drink his blood? I still don't get that one. Questioning some of the teachings that he had, encouraged, still the fact that they're looking and going, wow, that, he still lets us be close to him. And as they sit down around the meal... A normal Jewish tradition was missed. That as they came in off of the street, there wasn't a servant boy waiting to wash their feet as they entered into the room. As Jewish custom. They didn't have streets paved with concrete or pavement or asphalt. They had simple dirt roads that were being walked on with travelers, animals. It was dusty. And people valued their home. That was their, that was their possession. That was their identity as to the, the material things that they had in the world. And so in this culture, the respect for the home was great. And normally there would be a servant at the door that as each person walked in, they would wash the dirt and sweat and mud and whatever else was on the bottom of these sandals and feet as people walked in. But that person was missing on this day. We don't know why in Scripture. But they sat down and they actually went through the meal eating dirty in this room, which is against Jewish culture. It says after the meal, they all eat together. And and maybe it was because Jesus was waiting to see, would one of his disciples step out first? Would they go ask someone to come wash their feet? Would anyone even notice? But they all just sat and ate and chattered and talked. No other servant came in to wash their feet. The homeowner didn't come over. And apologize for not washing the feet of his guests. And so Jesus stands up and walks over to a basin and pours some water into it and takes the the towel off of the hook on the wall or or that was draped over a a chair and, and wraps it around his waist after he takes his outer garment off. And he walks back to the table of these former fishermen and tax collectors. And he gets down on his knee and begins to wash the mud and the dirt and the grime off of their feet. I don't know if you've been part of a a foot washing before, but without Jesus physically even being there, it's an emotional mess. I was on a rooftop in zaragoza mexico with a a student ministry that i was the pastor for for the last eight years and had a youth leader her name was barbara her name is she's still alive her name is barbara marbaugh and uh, she's 73 years old she's a brit and uh, she's feisty and she's a servant at heart she wakes up in the morning and starts cooking and cleaning and she goes to bed when she's done cooking and cleaning and taking care of an entire mission team and standing on top of this roof, the stars, beautiful sky in the mountains of Mexico. And we're reading this passage, and as one of the youth leaders is reading, um, I got the privilege of, of moving around the room and washing feet. And as I'm moving around this, this platform area that's real small, and sudden I can start to feel tears on the back of my neck as I'm washing feet 
that people are so moved by just the, the act of it that they're crying to such an extent that it's dropping on me. And I'm nothing compared to Jesus. I mean, nothing. And so to think, it's just that moment was just huge. And Barbara's sitting there and she's just pulling her feet up under her. Like, you're not touching my feet. And I'm looking at her, Barbara, I'm going to sit here until you give me your feet. And, and she's just weeping. Just crying and crying and crying. And as I watch this frail lady's feet, because physically she's just frail. She's just crying and whispering, I praise you, Jesus. I praise you, Jesus. And it's just a moment. And I only share that story with you to to help you encompass the concept that when people wash people's feet, something just happens. There's just this, it's just humbling and it's just overwhelming and you feel undeserving and it doesn't matter where the platform is, whether it's on a mountain in Zaragoza, Mexico, or whether it's a Grace Chapel or whether it's sitting in your own living room, that something happens. But I don't know how much that would have had to have been magnified when it's the Savior of the world who just walked in off the street having laid down on a dead girl and she got up. And having looked at a woman and said, your faith has healed you. And then he walks into a room and puts on the robe of a servant and gets on his knees and begins to wash. Something to that effect was going through Peter's mind because when Jesus got to Peter, Peter said, Lord, you will not wash my feet. I should be washing yours. And Jesus' response is, unless you let me wash you, you have no part of me. And then Peter's passion. He's a passionate man, which I relate to him a lot. But then he stands up. I can imagine him in my mind just going, then wash all of me. Because I want to be completely part. And as he says, then wash my head and my hands and everything. Jesus is just like, Peter, calm down. Your feet's enough. It's me. It's Jesus, okay? If I touch your feet, it's good. You're good. You're completely good, okay? And he's just so into it. Jesus washes the feet of all of his disciples and then sits back at the head of the table. Jesus, in that moment, He's creating the first step to loving us, which is just reminding us that He accepts us. He accepts us no matter what. Because the very next things that He shares is He looks across, He washes feet, and then He looks across the table at Judas. He says, whoever sticks his hand in the bowl with me right now is going to betray me. In Matthew's account, Judas actually looks up and says, it's me, isn't it? Jesus says, yeah, it's you. You put that, into, that, that level of acceptance into perspective, that Jesus came to Judas, his feet, knowing this is the man who's going to come kiss me on the cheek, turn me over, so that 39 lashes in the back, shards of bone, tomorrow, and Jesus still washes. And he moves around the table to Peter. And Peter's saying, no one's going to take you from me. And Jesus is saying, you're going to deny me three times. And he still washes. 
See, we're all looking for some level of acceptance in our life. And in that moment, it, it, it didn't come to play out in these disciples' lives until a little bit later. But in that moment, this service, this act of selfless servanthood on the part of Jesus simply said, I accept you. You are part of my kingdom. I washed your feet. I served you. We're all striving to be accepted. Striving through junior high, high school maybe, to get the grades, to score the goals, to get the degree, to bring home the right girl for mom, the right guy for dad, the one he won't kill this time. To get the right job that gives us the right feeling about our lives. To wear the right clothes, to have the right platform. I remember a specific time, I'm sitting at a, a table with someone, I'm talking, I had a friend of mine who bought a $5,000 watch, which still blows my mind. Um, and I was like, I, and I'm telling this guy, I'm like, he just bought this watch, I'm standing there, and he just hands it, and it's a $5,000 watch, and I'm looking at that going, do you know how many people in Africa I could have fed with that? And, and he's like, <laughs> and the guy I'm sitting next to is like, a watch like this one? <laughs> And I'm like, oh, and he's like, here's why I have this watch. I'm a lawyer. And when I sit down into a room, my client wants to see that watch on my wrist so that he can accept me as a powerful person. And I'm like, you got to drop five grand on a watch in order for someone to sit across the table from you to accept you. And he's like, yeah, that's the way this world works. But he bought it out of acceptance. He wanted acceptance in this scenario, some of us paint our faces on Sunday afternoons and we go sit in stadiums and boo the Bengals because <laughs> we want acceptance in some kind of community, <laughs> which is going to just get worse. I'm a UK fan. It's basketball. It's a bad deal. But we relate to some type of community because we want to be accepted somewhere. I was walking through, uh, I was uh, on vacation a little bit this past week, and I'm walking down a street and I see this guy who's got gauged earrings, but they're not just gauged, they're like that big. Like I actually am looking at them going, it would be so much fun to take bouncy balls and try to shoot them through your ears. And I'm walking past going, why do you do that? Because you want to be accepted in some type of community. We're all looking for acceptance because on some level we've been rejected. Sometime, somewhere, somehow, we were rejected. And we're looking around going, who's going to accept me next? And if you're going to love others, the first step you have to realize is, if I'm going to love others, I first have to accept the fact that Jesus washed my feet too, and that he accepted me into a community of believers in spite of who I was, not because of who I was. If you're waiting on Jesus to accept you in, once you get it all together, you'll never walk through the door. But acceptance doesn't mean approval either. You see, Jesus didn't wash Judas' feet and then stay silent about the betrayal. He didn't wash Peter's feet and then stay silent about him denying him three times. He washed his feet and said, I accept you for who you are right now as you are, but I don't approve of what you're about to do. And I want you to know that I'm accepting you in spite of the fact that you're about to hurt me. And then after you hurt me, I want you to wonder what I'm going to do next. And that's what many of us need to hear. If we're going to accept others, 
we have to accept them in spite of who they are. We love the fact that Jesus accepts us in spite of who we are. But it's very hard sometimes for us to accept people in spite of who they are because they might hurt us and we're not sure how we're going to respond to that. Or we can see it coming. They're going to hurt me. I know they're going to hurt me. So maybe I shouldn't accept them. Or they're living outside of God's will. The Bible says you shouldn't do that and they're doing that. So maybe I shouldn't talk to them. Maybe I shouldn't be in a relationship with them. Maybe I shouldn't be around them at all because they're doing things that the Bible says is wrong. You are too. If you're not, welcome to perfection, and please tell us how to get there. But we're all living outside of the will of God on some, at least small level in our lives. Some things just might be more public than others. And if we're willing to accept that Jesus would wash our feet, his response to the disciples was, now go do as I have done for you. Go accept them in spite of the fact that they're going to hurt you. It doesn't mean approve of what they're doing. It doesn't mean condone lifestyles that are outside of the will of God. But it means accept people as children of God and love them because your acceptance of them will give you the platform to invite them to sin no more. John 8, Jesus sets the example for that. Woman in adultery is brought to him. The man's not. The woman is. The Pharisees want to stone her. They think by the law, Jesus should stone her. He kneels over, starts writing on the ground. What's he writing? We don't know. We can read into it. But he starts to write on the ground. And he looks up and says, any of you without sin, go ahead and hit her with the first stone. And the stones start to make noise. But it's not against flesh. It says they hit the ground. And the crowd walks away. And Jesus had, has valued the humanity of this prostitute that is standing in front of him. He's valued and accepted her in spite of who she is, which gives him the platform to then say, has no one condemned you? Then go sin no more. How much more freeing do you think that is for a world that struggles so much with our sin and our lust and our desire for this world than for us to stand up for the weak, to stand up for the broken, to stand up for the hurting and say, you can't abuse them publicly. And we get the crowd to leave and then we can turn to those who are broken and say, they're not going to condemn you again. But stop doing what you're doing because you got to quit coming back to this circle where condemnation keeps coming at you. You're worth more than that. And that's what Jesus was telling this woman. You're worth more than that. You're worth more than that. If Jesus accepted you, will you accept others in spite of who they are? The second thing in this story that we see is that, that Jesus not only accepts us, but he values us. And this is a platform that's, that started in this story, but it extends. This is as the context continues, that as the context goes, Jesus washes feet. He looks at Judas and says, you're going to betray me. He looks at um, Peter and says, you're going to deny me. He looks around and says, I'm leaving. You're going to be here. Philip in, in, in chapter 14 then says, where are you going? We don't understand what you're saying. Tell 
Tell us where you're going. And Thomas and, and Philip are asking questions. And Philip even says, just show us the Father. We'll be okay without you if you show us the Father. And Jesus replies and says, you don't need to see the Father. You've seen him through me. I'm here. Now let me tell you this. I value you so much that I'm going to put my kingdom in your hands. I value everything about you that I'm going to entrust you, fishermen and tax collectors, with my story here. You're going to share it with the world. I'm going to give you my spirit. He's going to live inside of you. And I'm going to value you. I'm going to listen to what the questions that you're asking. And that was a great thing in this, this context, if you read it on your own during this week. That Jesus doesn't look and say, Philip, you've been with me for three years. Quit asking questions. As parents, some of us would maybe do that. We'd be like, Are you, do not ask why again. Instead, Jesus just says, why, Philip? Because I value you. Because you're worth more than just following me. You're now worthy of being a leader. When we begin to value those around us, and we begin to listen to who they are crying out to be, and we begin to look them in the eye and see them face to face and understand their self-worth, things will change. I got the weirdest phone call two weeks ago. I pick up the phone and it's a former student. It's a student that had uh, some disabilities. He had struggled all the way through elementary school. When I came to the church in, in 2000, he wasn't even allowed in the church that I had come to. And I'm like, why isn't that kid allowed in the church? And they're like, because when he was little, during VBS, he used to take bricks and throw them through the windows and the doors of the church. And he would just like walk up and just throw a brick through the door. And I'm like, did anybody talk to him about it and try to figure out why? And they're like, no, we just didn't. I'm like the parents came and complained. They didn't want him around their kids because they were afraid that he was going to throw a brick at their kid. And I'm like, I wish he would have thrown a brick at that kid because that kid drives me crazy. Um, and, and so they're like, he's not allowed in the church. And I'm like, I, where in here is that? And so I'm like, I see this guy's name's Jeremiah. He's, he rides his bike through our parking lot. During our youth events, he would ride around the parking lot like I know you're not going to let me in, but I want in, and I'm going to be on this property just because I want to know, are you going to invite me in? And so one day I look at, I was an intern then, and I look at these, I'm like, I'm going to go invite Jeremiah in. And he's like, at your own risk, man, you're gonna, it's going to cause trouble. Get ready. I hope you have the number for the cops because they're going to be here. And I'm like, okay. And so I walk out, and I'm like, dude, why don't you come in? He's like, I don't like that Jesus stuff. And he drops a few F-bombs on me. And I'm like, okay, all right. I'm like, do you like? food because we have pizza and he's like do you have diet coke (laughs) we have diet coke um and so he comes in gets a diet coke and within 30 minutes he's on the basketball court shooting baskets from like forever away and as he's throwing shooting these baskets and he's like shooting from midcourt making them it's just crazy to watch one our drummer from our band a high school junior walks off the stage and calls this kid a retard And this kid turns around and just jacks him in the jaw. Just hits him. And this, our drummer just falls. And this kid runs out. And the youth leaders are coming to me going, we told you not to have him come in here. I'm like, are you kidding? Our drummer just called him that. I want him to hit him again. And again and again. But it's wrong. So I won't tell him to do that. But I'm telling the drummer, like, you got to apologize. Get yourself up and you're going to apologize. And we have to go find Jeremiah. Well, Jeremiah had run and started running into a neighborhood. And we came chasing him. And we and the drummer and I come and sit down. And the drummer apologizes. And I look at Jeremiah and I'm like, hey, we want you back here. But you can't hit anyone ever again. You have to promise me that you will never hit anyone ever again. If someone treats you poorly, you come talk to me and I'll hit him for you. Um, and he started laughing. I'm like, I won't hit him, hit him, but I'll take care of it for you. And he's like, well, in my house, you hit. 
And what we found out, me and this drummer sitting on this stoop that day, was that his older brother would get drunk and come home and pin his arms down to the ground and just beat him until his brother fell asleep. Until he passed out. And Jeremiah just had to take it. And he couldn't fight back. So this any other platform that he could fight back, he was going to fight back. So Jeremiah started coming on Sunday nights. And he was a mess. An absolute train wreck. He was stalking girls. He kept telling me that he was going to take my wife from me. He's just like, she's going to be my wife. I'm like, no, she's not. Um, and he was like, he'd follow girls around and girls are like, he stalked me. I'm like, okay, I'll take care of it. And so we're putting Jeremiah over here. We're giving him his own youth leader. He had his own security guard when at our youth group time. And it was like, he walked in, our youth leader walked up, hey, Jeremiah, you know, let's go get some Diet Coke. And they're going and hanging out together the entire time. And the crazy thing was that after a, a progression of time, Jeremiah would come in at the end of the message and he would walk up and he was like, that one thing you were saying, I don't understand it. And he would start asking questions. And I would stand afterward and start to try to, to answer his questions. And it was really hard to figure out what he was meaning a lot of times. And then um, I left that church in June and we hadn't talked at all um, from June until two weeks ago. And he calls me. And, he picks up, and I pick up the phone and I'm like, Jeremiah, everything okay? You doing all right? And he's like, yep. Yeah. I just listened to this song, and I need you to listen to it. And he pushes play, and it's a country song, so I don't even know who sang it because I don't like country. I'm sorry if you do. Um, I don't know who it was, and I didn't even get all the words because it's like on a tape recorder real far away from the phone. Um, But it starts playing these words. You're my best friend, the only one who understands me. And I'm like, that's blowing me away right. And I'm standing in my kitchen worshiping God because he allowed me to know enough about God to be valued by him that I'm unworthy of being in the kingdom of God. So that way I felt that value enough to be able to look at a guy like Jeremiah and say, if he loves me, he's bound to love you too. And that gave me a phone call that changed everything. That's the value that God has in our lives. Is that when we see the value of someone beyond a guy who can throw bricks through a door. Or beyond the annoying guy at work that won't stop pushing the stapler. Or that one girl who every time you know that she comes to you, she's going to have some story about somebody. And you want to go the other direction. Or that one family member that's always going to ask for money. Instead of seeing them through the lens of what they're doing right now, if you could value who God wants them to be, then we'll all start getting phone calls. And it won't be the exception in my life because I'm just sharing you a story that blew my mind. What blew my mind later was that it blew my mind. It shouldn't. As a believer in Christ, loving the people around me and valuing them, it should be happening countless times around me. It should be continuous because when we're pouring our lives into the broken, they should be getting fixed and then we should glorify God. And that's where joy in life comes from. If we first accept and then we value. And third, and I know this seems to be getting harder and harder as the message goes on. Well, this one is really hard. We have to forgive like Jesus forgave. Man, that's hard. We have to forgive people like Jesus forgives people without condition. Jesus doesn't forgive based on 
someone's willingness to just come to him and say, I was wrong, forgive me. He forgave before we asked. He went to the cross before you asked. He went to the cross before I asked. Man, that's hard. I love it about Jesus and me. I am so stoked about a relationship that he has already forgiven me. But when he says, okay, love others, love one another as I've loved you, then that means we forgive before we're even asked. Wow. There's a key that would unlock a door of hurt and pain and anger for many of us. I have a... Someone very close to me who was abandoned as a child by her father. And I watched for years as she struggled with why her daddy didn't love her. Why wasn't she good enough? Why would he leave her? Why wasn't she worth staying for? All valid points. Until one day she said, you know what? I can't control him, can I? I can control me. And what's happening inside of me. And so she picked up a phone and called him and said, you don't have to justify anything. I forgive you. I don't condone the way you treated me, but I forgive you. I would love to tell you that he said, oh, thank you. I've been, I haven't been able to, to say it. I've wanted to for the last 16 years. No, he didn't. He said, for what? What did I ever do to you? That was his response. And she said, I thought that might be your response. I forgive you. And that was it. Wow. But what I watched happen after that was joy come back into her life. And joy can come back into yours. And the last thing is that Jesus believes in us. We're going to finish by just an act together, a symbol of how much he believes in us. We've got around the room some tables for communion is the way we're going to close this out because I don't want to tell you about the last principle. I want you to experience it. That when Jesus was in the same context that we've talked about in John 13, John goes into a prayer. Matthew takes it to another lens and says that while they were still there, after he had washed their feet, after Judas had been confronted, after Peter had been told that he would deny, Jesus had stood up with bread and and a cup. And he looked around the table and beyond the the serving on the ground of washing feet, he said, "This this is my body. It's going to be broken for you. I want you to take this together. And anytime that you take it, I want you to remember that I'm being broken for you because I believe so much in you, it's worth me giving up everything. That I will sacrifice unity with the Father. I will be separated from Him. I will stand toe-to-toe with Satan. I will punch Him in the mouth repeatedly for you. 
I will beat him and I will take a beating. I will carry the burden of every sin and shame in this world because you mean that much to me. And I believe that if you would step out and live based on the spirit I'm putting inside of you, it would change everything. He said, but it won't just be my body. It will also be my blood. Everything's going to be poured out of me. So eat and drink and remember you're worth more than anything to me. And so is everyone around you. And so Jen's going to come up and just place underneath. In the next few minutes, we're going to spend time reminding ourselves, maybe giving yourself a little pep talk with the bread and the wine of saying, I I can get through it. I matter that much. God's going to believe in me through his body and blood. We have stations in the back. And as you're led to go and to partake of communion, feel free. Spend time with your father, thanking him. But then spend the back half of this time asking him, who do you need me to love this week, God? Who's standing on the fringes of your kingdom that's just waiting on me to love someone the way that you've loved me so that they will enter into this kingdom too? The next few minutes are yours with your father.